This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. Matt Fogel is the district attorney in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. And after George Floyd's death, he wrote a letter to the community entitled Black Lives Matter, period, full stop. And after speaking out, he was disciplined by his political party. Yeah, the the local party censured me. You're probably going to lose your job. And if that happens, is it worth it? You're damn right. Coming up in this episode of Colors. Mon Ericot grew up in Jericho. Everywhere I moved, I had to show my identity card to Israeli military checkpost. Even if I wanted to leave the country, I had to get a permit from the Israelis to leave my own country. So it was a very, very unusual, difficult period. Ericot, the former chief representative of the Palestine Liberation Organization, now lives in the U.S. And like most other U.S. residents, he saw the George Floyd murder. I just got the goosebumps when you mentioned George Floyd. And, uh, you know, when you are oppressed, when your freedom is denied, when uh, when you are not enjoying your basic human rights, every time you see another people, another ethnic uh, group, another minority, another um, uh, community suffering from the same thing, you have that natural sympathy and affiliation uh, with them. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys. I'm J.J. Green, and I'm Black. And this is Colors. How are you, J.J.? Doing well, Chris. In the last couple of weeks, there has been a significant amount of violence in uh, the Middle East, in Gaza and Israel. Uh, Gaza is called by many Palestine. Uh, And it has been uh, another um, flashpoint where we're reminded of the deep-seated animosities Uh, that exists there between Israelis and Palestinians. So there's an individual that I've known for a while, and he's a really great guy, uh, and I am very, very uh, happy to call him a friend. His name is Mon Erekat. And uh, Ambassador Erekat was the uh, chief representative of the Palestine Liberation Organization here in Washington, head of the delegation here for, for many years until 2017. I met him actually uh, in the Middle East uh, years ago. And one of the things that occurred to me, he lives here in the uh, in the U.S. now, and he works here in the U.S. The objective of this show is to get as many per- perspectives of ethnicities as we can on the show. 
I wanted to hear from him what it was like being a Palestinian, living in the U.S., and seeing all this going on overseas, still understanding that animosities most likely against Palestinians would probably ratchet up. And here's that conversation. Let me just start by first asking this question. What is it like growing up as a Palestinian in the Middle East and then moving to the U.S.? Well, uh, first of all, uh, when the Israeli uh, occupation started in 1967, I was only six years old, and uh, I I spent most of my uh, young uh, teen years uh, under the Israeli military occupation. So definitely this had an impact uh, on me, you know, seeing uh, Israeli military practices, uh, arresting people, closing down um, uh, cities and villages, preventing people from moving. I always felt that uh, I didn't enjoy my full freedom because uh, everywhere I moved, I had to show my identity card to Israeli military checkpost. Even if I wanted to leave the country, I had to get a permit from the Israelis to leave my own country. I have uh, to have a permit to return to my own country. So it was a very, very unusual, difficult period. And uh, but it made me it made me appreciate freedom uh, more. Uh, you know, when you lose something, you appreciate it uh, uh, more. And. Uh, uh, you know, it, it def- definitely impacted uh, my my own personality, and uh, uh, you know, uh, helped me develop my my thinking about the situation there and how I feel about you know people being free, treated uh, in a dignified manner. Okay, so tell us precisely where you lived um, in the Middle East. You said you lived in Israel, uh, but. Um... You, you tell us exactly where you lived there. I I, I was born and raised in Jericho. Uh, it is uh, the oldest uh, city, uh, at least inhabited city in the world. And uh, I grew up there until I finished my high school. Uh, then I went out for my higher education in England first and then the United States. Uh, after that, I lived uh, for a year and a half in the United Arab Emirates. I worked there, but I spent most of my time in my homeland in Palestine and in the United States. Yeah, I, I misspoke when I said uh, you lived in Israel, but you lived. It was Jericho. I recall meeting you um, more than more, probably a dozen years in ago. Jerusalem. Yes, uh, in East Jerusalem. I recall meeting you there, two thousand eight. And, um, you know, we had long conversation there and we've spoken many times since then. And you live here in the United States uh, and you've worked tirelessly for social justice and racial justice issues. Um, And I just want to ask you, how does how does all of what's taken place in the United States in the last year impacted you what what is what's your thought been when you look at the george floyd situation and then you look at the situation in your own home country uh i I just got the goosebumps when you mentioned george floyd and uh you know uh as i as i told you during an earlier conversation you know when you are oppressed when your freedom is denied 
when uh, when you are not enjoying your basic human rights, every time you see another people, another ethnic uh, group, another minority, another um, uh, community suffering from the same thing, you have that natural sympathy and affiliation uh, with them. Uh, I've always I've always followed the history of the United uh, States slavery, the treatment uh, of African Americans and other minorities, uh, the Japanese uh, community uh, during World War II, and and you know other other uh, minorities, including Muslims and Arabs in this country in the in the aftermath of the September 11 attacks, and uh, you know I, I I always I always have a strong affiliation with people who suffered. You know, when you suffer yeah. and you see other groups suffering, it's natural affiliation with their with their suffering. Uh, before George Floyd, there have been many cases in which, uh, you know, African Americans were 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 killed, uh, and and uh, yes. uh, unjustifiably so. And uh, uh, I am glad that America is finally waking up. Uh, to that, you know, I mean, the rate at which African Americans are being killed uh, by by police is three times as 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 much as whites. And uh, I'm not saying that all police are bad. No, I think we need a strong police force in this country to protect us. Yes, but there has to be reforms in order to teach these police officers how to deal with different situations. If you are African-American, if you are an Arab Muslim, if you are Hispanic, it doesn't mean that you are guilty and you are a criminal. And uh, they, they should change their views of, of, of these different ethnic uh, uh, groups and understand that they are all American citizens who show loyalty to this country, respect this country, serve this country, and they should treat it uh, fairly, and they should treat it with with respect and and dignity. You know, Ambassador, and I need to point out to the the listeners that uh, Mon Ericott is a very humble guy, but he's one of the most well-known diplomats in the world for the work that he's done for the rights of Palestinians. And uh, I was just fortunate enough to meet him. And the reason I call him ambassador is because of his role uh, for many years as the chief representative of the PLO here in the United States. But, uh, Ambassador, I want to ask you, uh, sort of uh, piggybacking on what you were just talking about, um, life here in the U.S. for people of color. Um, You know, it's very interesting. We have heard for many years from uh, Muslims and and, and people of color in this country since 9-11 about how they've been treated um, suspiciously for no reason at all, just because they look a certain way. And I, as an African-American, I know that. It happens to me all the time, you know, because I am a dark-skinned person. And, (laughs) you know, I am followed. I am often um, ignored, often treated just very differently from other people who may be who may look like my white brothers and sisters, but I'm treated differently. So, tell us about the experience of the Palestinian in this country, um, the the Arab in this country, the Muslim in this country uh, since 2001, since the 9/11 attacks. 
Well, uh, you know, if, if you allow me just to go back before that, when I first came to this country in 1980, and I, I was active uh, at the university in uh, supporting the just cause of my people, their struggle for freedom from the Israeli occupation, uh, Palestinians were uh, really, really portrayed as, as, as bad, you know, evil, quote-unquote, terrorists and uh, it, it, it struck me so much uh, how uh, the ordinary American at the time, I'm talking about in the early 80s, did not have enough information about what was going on. So I blamed ourselves to some extent for not getting our side of the story to the American people. And, and, and then we started changing that. Today we feel much better as Palestinians. Uh, of course, I am, I am an Arab. And I'm a Muslim at the same time. And uh, the September 11 events have changed uh, uh, the paradigm and, and uh, the dynamics uh, fundamentally. Um, you talking about you looking, I mean, I, I, I was, I experienced uh, that uh, at airports. Uh, yeah. uh, my son, I flew once with my son, whose name is Rashid, mm -hmm. after my father. And my name, Ma'an Arikat, if you write it, uh, JJ, or if you say it, nobody would know what my ethnic background is. They would never think I'm a Muslim or even an Arab or Palestinian. But I insisted in always including my middle name, yeah. which is Rashid, my father's name, so that people know that I am an Arab and I am proud of being an Arab and a Muslim. And I knew that would create problems for me, but I never tried to remove my father's name from my ID or my passport. My, I named my son Rashid after my father. And one time we were at the airport and uh, when they gave him the boarding pass, he was like eight years old. They put, uh, they put like an X a mark there you know, I, I think they thought he was a security threat. What? At the time. Eight years old? I, even, I think even less than that. Wow. You know, it was me, him, and I'm not sure if my wife was also added to that. Uh, they didn't stop him or, you know, talk to him. They, 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 they kind of, you know, just uh, yeah. went through a more uh, strict search for me. And uh, I remember one time I was flying out of Ottawa to Washington, D.C. This is before I assumed uh, or took off uh, over my post here in Washington, D.C. It was back in 2007 or six. And, uh, the, you know, the immigration, the custom uh, officer just, uh, you know, took me on the side. And I looked at her. I said, what is exactly why are you doing this? She said, oh, it's random, random search. <laughs> And I looked behind me, there was nobody behind me. Yeah. You know, everybody in, in front of me already has been uh, processed. And I said, are you sure this is random? And she said, yes. I said, are you sure it has nothing to do with my color? The mustache, I, I used to have a mustache. I said, it has nothing to do with my mustache or my color. She said, no, my name, my middle name, my name. She said, no, absolutely nothing, okay? Right. I said, I don't see any randomness in this. I'm the only one left, you know. So, you know, I, I tried, I tried. And then she patted me down and, you know, things like that. And, um, you know, uh, we, 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 went to th we went through that. They, they, they want you to feel, uh, they want you to think that you are a suspect uh, in everything you do. But uh, 
you know, I think we managed uh, in general as Muslims, as Arabs, we managed in general to to fight back. You know, I mean, we are proud of who we are, of our culture, of our history, of our religion, of our language. At the same time, we respect the country that we are living in. We respect the United States. We respect its traditions and customs. And we expect them to do the same thing when it comes to us and not be driven by stereotypes, misperceptions, and and that are mainly caused by by lack lack of information and education about who we are and what we are. But uh, today, uh, 20 years after the heinous attacks uh, of September to uh, you know 2001, I I believe that we are uh, 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 in a better position today than we were uh, many years ago. And that, uh, you know, the majority of the American people understand who we are and what contribution we are providing to the United States and to the society that we live in. You know, Man, education is everything. People, uneducated people do horrible things uh, and do things like what you talked about, um, the airport situation. I can think of. There are two airports in this country, and every single time I fly into those airports from out of the country, I'm pulled aside. And it's always random, they say. And I I know it's not, and you know it. We both know it. They know it. But education is everything. And it's my understanding now that you've left uh, government, you're now working as an educator. And uh, I think if I'm correct, you're at Arizona State University. Are you able to engage with us about a little bit about what you're doing and, 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 and the role of education in your life and why it's important now? Well, uh, you know, Arizona State University is my alma mater. And uh, uh, I've, I've always been proud, uh, you know, to, to be affiliated with that institution and uh, Actually, uh, I was approached, uh, you know, to assume or to take over that that position when I was still the chief representative of the PLO at the United States. And uh, uh, I I work for an educational institution. Uh, Part of my activities and and responsibilities involve uh, education, students and talking to delegations coming from uh, uh, you know, overseas. But my specific task is uh, advising the university uh, uh, on the Middle East and North Africa uh, to uh, further their global engagement, uh, Arizona State University global engagement in the Middle East and North Africa. Yes. And uh, this uh, involves uh, identifying partners and counterparts in that region who can uh, partner with the university to do joint research, joint projects in different fields. If, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if you know, JJ, but Arizona State University has been uh, selected as the number one uh, university in the United States in innovation for six years in a row. No. And, uh, and they are ahead of MIT, Berkeley, Stanford, all these heavy guns, you know, and uh, it has transformed into uh, a new American university uh, away from the classical, uh, traditional uh, educational institution. And uh, it it has a lot of uh, uh, expertise and research and uh, 
skills to offer uh, to educational institutions, governments, and other counterparts in the MENA region. And uh, uh, this is what what they do. I'm based in Washington, D.C. here. And, uh, you know, they, uh, the university's main offices are in Tempe, Arizona, but uh, they have an office uh, here in Washington, D.C. And that's what I do. And I enjoy uh, doing what, uh, what I'm doing because I'm still interacting with the region that I belong to, uh, in a region that I find it easy for me to communicate with people there and to uh, try to create the atmosphere for collaboration between um, the, the, the two sides. But uh, uh, overall, it, it is under umbrella of education. And, uh, you know, I enjoy doing what I'm doing. It's, it's, it's impossible to talk to you um, uh, about your life, your background and the future without talking about what's currently taking place now, today, May 14th, 2021 uh, in Israel and Palestine right now. And uh, I need to point out, we don't take a political side in anything we do, but we don't avoid politics when they come up. And it's important to note that um, it's impossible to discuss anything with this man without talking about the situation that's taking place there. Uh, But we're going to do it in a way um, that is respectful of the program and respectful of you and respectful of him. So, uh, Ambassador, give me your thoughts on what's taking place right now in between Israel and Palestine. You know, well, I feel I feel sad for my people and for the innocent Palestinians who lost their lives uh, in the last few days. You know, the numbers are growing by by the hour. Israeli bombardment of uh, uh, civilian targets continue unabatedly. Uh, I feel sad overall because uh, we have missed many opportunities to uh, reach peace, to end this conflict with the, with the Israelis. But there, there are certain principles. I mean, I appreciate that people don't want to take sides. Okay, that's fine. I'm not asking people to be on the side of the Palestinians against the Israelis or vice versa. Uh, This should not be a win-lose situation. This could be a win-win situation. Take both sides. However, stand for freedom, stand for liberty, stand for equality, stand for justice. Do not condone what Israel is doing in terms of depriving the Palestinian people of their basic human rights. The ethnic cleansing that is going on in East Jerusalem, trying to evict Palestinians from their homes that they have lived in for for more than 100 years. The building of settlements, the confiscation of land from Palestinians, uh, allowing Palestinians, uh, uh, sorry, allowing Israelis to use roads and, you know, banning or preventing Palestinians from using these roads. A recent report by Human Rights Watch and an Israeli human rights group, Beit Salem, accused Israel of practicing apartheid. I know many Jews in this country and their their supporters don't like that word, but this is exactly what is happening in Palestine. Israel is discriminating against the native people of the land, 
they have been denying their freedom for more than 54 years now. And, you know, there has to be time to put an end to that. And, and, and the solution is simple. People say this is a complex situation. I said, yes, of course it is complex. Let's stick to the principles. We want the Israelis to live in peace and security. We want them to live in, 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 in a neighborhood that is safe and, and secured for them. But at the same time, I want my people to also live in peace and security and to live in dignity and not to be subjected to humiliation and oppression by a powerful military force. So don't take sides with Israelis and Palestinians. Take the side of your principles. Take the side of peace and justice and call for an end to the conflict uh, in a way that both Palestinians and Israelis can live in dignity, security, peace, and in, a, in coexistence with each other. You cannot do that when one party is using the logic of power to subjugate another people and tell them to do what they want them to do. Israel is more powerful militarily, but the Palestinians are more powerful because they are the owners of a very just cause and they will not give up until their rights are achieved and implemented. This time it was my turn to get the goosebumps. You said, well, don't pick a side, just follow your principles. You know, absolutely. it doesn't have absolutely. to, it doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be mm-hmm. both. It absolutely. can be everybody wins. And this is the reason why uh, I wanted to have you on this program, Ambassador Erica, because as, I've, as long as I've known you, you've always been a straight shooter down the middle. And I know you have many Jewish friends here in the U.S., Absolutely. And, and, I, I, I've, I've always enjoyed uh, Israelis as well, you know, and, and I, I always tell, uh, you know, I find many American Jews uh, understand my suffering and my pain more so than 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 others. And, uh, you know, when I tell you take the side of, of, of your principle, that's the only way you can, you know, for people who care about Israel to protect and preserve Israel. We are not going away, JJ. The Palestinians are not going away. We're going to be there in another 100 years. Israel has been created only only 73 years ago. Mm-hmm. We have been there for thousands of years, and we plan to be there for another 1,000, 2,000 years. Okay? It is in Israel's best interest to end the conflict with the Palestinians in order to secure its existence for not only the next 10, 20, 30 years, but for 100 more years. If they want to continue having a conflict with us, we are, we are not going to leave that land. And therefore, when they stick to the principle, you know, I, I hear people here to talk about, oh, we, we, we stand by Israel. Mike Pence says that. Uh, Mark Rubio, uh, senator, says that. Another governor, the governor of Arizona, Ducey, says that. Oh, fine. But which Israel are you you standing by? Are you standing by the Israel that, in your view, was created in 1948 and and became so much advanced in different fields? 
and and you know brought you know Jews from all over the world to to the historic land of Palestine to create a home for them and live in peace or are you talking about Israel which is on daily basis denying the basic human rights of the Palestinian people humiliating them oppressing them denying their freedom and subjugating them to different measures and practices of military occupation you ne- you need to be clear about which israel are you standing by well final question uh for you today um ambassador erica um looking at um what's happening here in the u.s um, we've talked already about what's taken place since last year, since the George Floyd death, but we've also looked at it against the backdrop of what's taking place around the world. And you've made a very poignant example of uh, inequity that's taking place uh, in the Middle East. Uh, and what are the lessons learned? What is the lesson the U.S. should learn from this situation right now, and how can it leverage it to um improve or to fix the problem here in the U.S., the race issue, social justice? Well, I'll tell you something. I am someone who has been impressed by the progress that's being made in this country in terms of uh, civil rights movement and things like that. But I always said this country is not there yet. And uh, I have always said that beneath the surface, unfortunately, there are people, many people who still believe in discrimination and in racism, and who still believe that this country should belong to only one ethnic group, and you shouldn't allow others to enjoy the same privileges and rights in this country. I've always believed strongly that beneath the surface, that's that this still exists beneath the surface. Unfortunately, it took uh, one person and one administration in the last four years to bring all these sentiments to the surface, to embolden them, to encourage them, to reach the point of inciting them to carry out violent actions and to uh, give them the impression that they will be protected, that they will cover up, and that they will be uh, uh, they will they will defend them in whatever they want uh, to do. Unfortunately, that toxic atmosphere that was created over the last four years contributed to uh, uh, these sentiments coming to the surface and people feeling emboldened, and they thought that this is the time that we can reverse things and and bring things backward. The, 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 The cycle of history does not go backward. History can only move forward. And in this country, I think this was a wake up call, a wake up call for Americans. You can't be neutral. You cannot be neutral. You can be either against this culture of discrimination, renewed discrimination and racism, or you can be with this culture. There is no gray. It's either black or white. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot choose gray because you have to take a stand. 
And Americans in general are people sometimes who don't like to take a stand. They are happy with the status quo. They are happy to go on with their daily lives without having to make a stand on very crucial and sensitive issues. One advantage of this previous administration and all the toxicity that it created in this country was that it made Americans take a stand. You cannot be neutral about race and discrimination and all this culture that wanted to take this country back 50 years, 60 years, and bring chaos and instability. And this is, in my view, one advantage of what the previous administration tried to, to do in this country. And, and you know, it, it was surprised to see how people responded. And sometimes it takes this kind of action to send a very clear message that, you know, the, the strength of this country is built on all the components of its society. And you cannot take it back 56 years and you cannot change and, and destroy the progress that has been made. In terms of equality, we still have a long way to go, JJ. Uh, the pandemic, COVID-19, showed how disadvantaged African-Americans were, how disadvantaged Hispanics were, how disadvantaged poor, the poor were. You know, this in the beginning, when it started in Italy, they said, oh, this is a rich man's uh, disease or pandemic or virus. In America, it proved it was a disadvantaged, poor, unequal uh, uh, people uh, disease. And, and there is much that needs to be done to change the situation and to provide equity to people, disadvantaged people who suffered the most from this pandemic. It was clear. That was, that was, that showed the weakness of America, despite all the resources that we had. When it came to COVID-19, the hardest hit were the poor neighborhoods, the disadvantaged people in African American and Hispanic communities. And this has to be changed. It will take time, but it must be changed. Ambassador Mon Ericott, um I will not forget this conversation anytime soon, and I will be eternally grateful for you taking time to talk to us on Colors about your views regarding race in America and around the world. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Take care. You're listening to Colors. I'm Kimmy Yong. I'm Chinese-American. I'm from upstate New York and based in New York City. For so many Asian Americans, our stories and our um, our pain has been largely discounted uh, by the mainstream media, and I, I think that you know we even in you know the beginning when we were working on the railroads, and I, I don't know if you guys know about this uh, the photo called the last spike. Um, yes, which was you know it's 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 all white men celebrating the final spike going into the transcontinental railroad which was largely built by chinese workers and there's not a single chinese person 
in this photograph, um, they were not included, even though they did most of the work. Uh, and I, I feel that that has largely been, um, you know, what we've seen in media for decades, where the stories of Asian Americans have not been told. Um, and a lot of the stereotypes and tropes have persisted. And so we, we come up today, um, you know, we see a lot of these hateful attacks and violence and pain. And I think it's been surprising for a lot of people, but it's it, it hasn't been that surprising for Asian Americans. We've seen it for a long time. Maybe this is one of the few times that other people have acknowledged it, but it's it's definitely not been the first time that we've felt these kinds of attacks. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Well, I, I enjoyed the interview with the uh, with the ambassador, and I will say some some key parts to it, JJ, that got me are when he said that when he saw the George Floyd video, uh, the knee on the neck video, that it gave him goosebumps weird way of putting it but being that that being the person who is having someone kneel on your neck has been the role of the palestinians unfortunately uh, a lot um anytime that they have had to go across the border if they're allowed to and they're checked and they're sometimes physically roughed up a little bit uh I, that one got me when he said that so that's that's one um what, what tell me what what was what, what stood out for you in particular? What stood out for me was stepping away from that and talking about living here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And it was almost as if he, you know, had just. I mean, he was able to to empathize absolutely completely with every brother that I know. I mean, when I say brother, I mean every African American yeah. that I yeah. know. I mean, his words and his thoughts, you know, the whole business about goosebumps, they weren't good goosebumps. No. What oh, he was, what he's talking about, it was this 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 cold, you know, this chill that you get when you think think about and you look at that video and you hear that man pleading for his life. And him being able to talk about it from experience, uh, from an experience that he's lived when he was in Palestine, it's just you know, it to me sent this message to me that um, more of this needs to happen, more dialogues like this. I was very, very, very happy to talk to him specifically about his experience here in the U.S. because this is a guy who, you know, he wouldn't uh, he wouldn't come out and try to puff himself up to be more than anybody else. But I mean, he is a very significant figure when it comes to efforts to bring peace between Israel and and Palestine. I mean, he was the top figure in the U.S. that was engaged in these discussions until it was all shut down some years ago. So, you know, to me, having him uh, express what it's like living here in the U.S. and those memories of living there and, and being able to understand how things are here was just invaluable to me. Well, it, an example of that that you both talked about was the random checks at the airport and about how what a huge coincidence it is that he's always selected at security as a random check Yeah, that he's always uh, selected at security as a random check when it's obvious that he's not. It was curious. I, or you said that there were two airports in the United States 
where you know that you are always selected as the random check. Are you do you feel comfortable disclosing those airports or would you rather not say? Well, I can. Yeah, I can say that. Charlotte and Houston. I see. Okay, that I was going to say because in the Washington area, I don't think that would be the case, but um, it would be with, with for him. But I would think not for you. So in this case, two southern cities. Um, the other thing that I pointed out is that was it you or he who said um, education is the key? I said what, that. I said you that. said that, and I, I'm. I'm going to disagree. Some things are not educationable, if there's such a word. Some things you just can't, you cannot educate people. You'd like to, you can try. They're just not going to get it. And it's maybe it's too many years of stuff that's been built up inside them or stuff that they've been told or feelings that they have. But I think you can, you know, you can get that thing. You can lead a horse to water. Um, you can lead somebody to the trough of knowledge, but you can't make them drink from it. And I, so I, I, I don't know that that you can educate people enough so that this this bigotry of all kinds goes away. That's just just my thought on it. I, I hope so, you're right. You're you're well, sounding more optimistic tune than I am today on well, that. Well, but. You know, you know, that's fair enough. It's a fair point that you make, but then do we, do we, I mean, so what, what are you saying? Should we just continue no, no, to do no, something? I, Should we continue to do something that's useless? No, of course not, because you are reaching some people. But I think that there are, an off, there are unfortunately a number of people that just are, are never going to get it. Um, I, you know, I, I can, I'm not going to, of course, but I, but I could, and it's just, we could talk forever. And, but Chris, I'll, I'll say this to you. Sure. A part of the reason why I do this is because I'm afraid and I'm just going to be point blank, just brutally honest about this. I'm afraid. I'm afraid to stop because if you stop, then that's one less voice, that's one less platform, that's one less place where people are pushing to f- to fix something that can be fixed. And, you know, we see evidence of it periodically, but, you know, there's always a pushback against it that sent- essentially renders it, you know, back to where it was, uh, or at least it seems to. Um, and I'm just afraid to stop pushing. Because I don't know what would happen to me if I stopped doing that. I don't know what would happen to my family, children. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'm just afraid to stop. That's a vulnerability yeah. that I don't talk about very often. But that's no, no, that's, that's, the bottom that's line. good. That's yeah, no, that's heartfelt. <laughs> that's uh, that's very good. Uh, we want to remind you that you can reach us if you'd like to email us any questions, comments. Um, suggestions for the podcast anything that you'd like to reach us we are available at the colors podcast at gmail.com i'm jj green and i'm black i'm chris core and i'm white and this is colors coming up in our next episode of colors gentrification some people say it's good Some say it's bad. It depends on where you're talking about. In St. Petersburg, Florida, 
They're not sure. There's a, really an incredible amount of investment happening in this city. Uh, and and so home prices are, are on the rise. Home values are going up. Uh, and, you know, that's uh, in many ways elevating the profile of St. Petersburg um, for, you know, to outsiders. Uh, but it's, it's creating an affordability problem for folks who are from here. Uh, and a lot of that, unfortunately, is playing out in the mostly black neighborhoods uh, of town. Josh Solomon is a reporter for the Tampa Bay Times. This is what's at the heart of the problem. The Tropicana Field property. The Trop property is this 86-acre, uh, enormous, mostly rectangular, all-city-owned, contiguous parcel uh, on which there are these really grand plans to build something incredible there. Um, and that that parcel used to be a predominantly black working class neighborhood back in the in the 70s and 80s before it was uh, raised. And ultimately, the baseball stadium was built on top of it. What will be done with the Trump property? That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. Time to go, and we need to say thank you to some folks. Dimitri Sotis, Hillary Howard, Mike Chikaitis, Antonello Favro, Casper Mangalit, Julia Ziegler, Joel Oxley, Taisha Green, Cecily Fleming, Shelby Steele, Thetford Collins, Dorothy Gilliam, Dr. Anthony Fauci, Cortland Cox, the truth speakers, all of those who stand up to the issue of race, regardless of the social and peer pressure to avoid it. Thanks to Joby Warwick, Sean Anderson, Ron Pemberton, Jess, Scheinfluke, Marta Moran, the Pawnee community. And for the music, thanks Jesse Gallagher, Cosmic, and Offshane. And most of all, thank you for listening. And as always, remember, keep talking to each other. And just as important, keep listening to each other. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.